millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. Uh, Kate, before we go any further, I think you should fill us in on your Euro Disney adventure because last time we were sitting in this room recording, you were just about to rush off to I was in haste. the Eurostar. Yes. So how did it, how did it go? Uh, it hasn't changed. It's the same as it was maybe when I last went five, five or six years ago, but it will change in the next three years major overhauls are happening at Euro Disney, Disneyland Paris, as they call it. Big so structural changes. Massive structural thematic alterations are taking place. They're going to knock a third of it down and build Frozen Land, which is, you know, kind of, it's kind of asking for it, isn't it? That's, that's, that's overdue, surely, Frozen well Land. Well overdue. So they have a Frozen ride I just, they've got lots of no they've got no frozen at all they've got the old sort of when you go WTF. into WTF sort of, I know I know and the worst part about Euro Disney is this terrible bit that nobody likes called Tomorrowland <laughs> which is the kind of retro futuristic half-assed thing where you go to see Lilo and Stitch or play a laser game with Buzz Lightyear and all these things right. that no one cares about anymore so yeah and that's where Space Mountain is and Space Mountain of course is the, the, the biggest roller coaster in Disney and even that had a sad trajectory from being this kind of thing that paid tribute to the earliest silent movies like the Lumiere kind of brothers era. Now it's the Star Wars ride. So it's exactly right. the same structure, but they just changed the, the paraphernalia the around dressing. it. Yeah. Do they still have a Michael Jackson no. film? That's gone, no, no, it? no, exactly. So they kind of, you know, they sort of do this thing where they, they take out things that aren't very fashionable anymore, yeah. but they haven't really actually sort of restructured it. So, yeah. so that will happen. But no, it was good. Small World is exactly the same as it ever was, as enchanting as ever. And there were lots of characters walking around, including Frollo, from uh, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I thought was a nice French French twist on it. Although I still find it weird that the characters in the ride speak French just because it's in Paris. Aren't they? Um, because some, someone I know went there recently with, with their children and um, maybe you didn't go this far, but you can you can have an audience with the Disney princesses. You can, we didn't go into that. Part. No, but apparently the Disney princesses are all sort of like UN envoys like multilingual they can just like switch between <laughs> French English German you know maybe I guess maybe they they, they know their spiel in but it's probably but... the highest level of, of, yeah. of pay for yeah. a Disney character I mean I just think it's ridiculous you're going through um, Pirates of the Caribbean and the Johnny Depp uh, Jack Sparrow that pops out of the kind of um, wine <laughs> barrel French. is speaking in French and then That's suddenly great. it goes a pirate's life for me in Johnny, Johnny Depp's voice and you're like this is just 
bit too much. But yeah, so I would say don't go, but then go in three years' time and go to Frozen Land. <laughs> Just briefly, because you mentioned the, what's his name? The Hunchback of Notre Dame The Hunchback, guy? Claude Frollo. Frollo. No, not the Hunchback. That's the, no, that's this the, is the he's Archdeacon. The baddie, right? yeah. yeah, he's the baddie. Because you've written in this week's magazine about Disney villains. Mm. What 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 did you what have you noticed about that? What was I the think theme that, that you picked up? Uh, Disney villains um, Disney doesn't have the guts to make a proper villain nowadays. So if you look back to the original, the kind of Maleficent, the Snow White, Sleeping Beauty kind of era, they were just evil people who did things Pure like evil. yeah, put a curse on a baby because they weren't invited to a party, things like that. No backstory. And then there was a kind of a development whereby when there was this Disney Renaissance in the in the nineties with Aladdin and all the other ones, they they actually started to write backstories for the characters, mm. for the baddies. So they might be motivated by lust and greed and things, which is mm. fair enough. Mm. And then now you've got these terribly wishy-washy characters that aren't actually really baddies at all. And that part of the trajectory of the film is like working out what their motivations are. So I think that they need to kind of just get some some guts and write some pure evil again. Because it seems a strange time in history to be not allowing children to face something that might just be like a genuine asshole in, yeah. in a story. It's like, why are they asking the motivations of why this person is as bad as they are? Did they have a bad childhood or, you know? Well, it's not only motivation, is it? They're they're sort of giving them a little bit of a chance for redemption and and for you to go away after the film feeling like the baddie wasn't really a baddie after all. Yeah, like even in Frozen, you've got this sort of, you know, the Snow Queen is a very terrifying prospect in Hans Christian Andersen. It's kind of uh, translated to Elsa. It's Mm. very, very relatable. Mm. I hate the word relatable, but very sort of lovely young girl. And then you've got the marshmallow, the monster, the ice monster who's, who's shown having a kind of character conversion at the end and wearing uh, the little tiara and jumping around and it's sort of in a way it's saying to children don't don't worry because there's no such thing as bad and of course there is as Mm, we know mm. yeah and moana which my kids uh love there is a terrifying creature in that but uh once once the thing that was stolen from it is restored to it it kind of goes ah yeah and just (laughs) turns into a lovely island again it's okay it's nothing to see here what are we going to be talking about today? The Booker Prize? Well, you're just back from the Booker. Back from the Booker. Mm. It's Booker Week. And we're talking about Fahrenheit 11.9, which is Michael Moore's new film. And we will have uh, the umpteenth of our non-aversaries, which are generally themed around the 90s, but not always. So, Tom, you attended the Booker Prize this year. Is it, how, is it 50th? The 50th it's one? the 50th anniversary, so um, they're even more excited than they were for the 40th anniversary. Mm. Um, and the 49th. And the 49th anniversary. <laughs> I mean, the, the Booker is, um, uh, they've, over the past sort of decade, they've come up with more and more sort of special bolt-ons. <laughs> it's like some computer game where you keep on buying like extra things to add to it. So we've had like the Golden Man Booker, the Booker of Bookers, the Lost Man Booker. And these uh, are extra prizes are extra on, top on top of the, the just main to, one. Just, you know, because it's a cake with icing and you keep needing more icing on top of the cake. Um, but yes, uh, there is there is buzz around it in its 50th year. We, we sat down in London's historic Guildhall on Tuesday evening, which is really impressive. That's where we have some conferences. Yeah, we've had a company conference there. Indeed, (laughs) we have. Um, So you're in the Great Hall, which is this medieval building in the middle of Guildhall. Um, And Camilla Parker Bowles is there. She's the patron. So she gives her little little speech about the importance of reading and the man from Man, uh, (laughs) the man from the Man group who uh, sponsored the prize, uh, gives his little speech about 
the importance of literature. And then eventually at the end of the evening, you find out who's won, who's won the Booker Prize. Was, is there a real hierarchy of tables? And, and, and if so, what's, what was the prime table that well, everyone wanted to well, be Well, when I got there, um, I arrived with uh, Jason Cowley, our, our boss and the editor of the New Statesman. And uh, the man with the clipboard said, um, oh, Jason, uh, you're on table three. Oh, Tom, you're on table 31. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that Jason had a, had a better spot than and I did. And what were you on last year? Um, I was I was closer to the stage last year. So but last year you were sitting next to Tom Mashler, who who actually invented the prize, founded the prize, yeah. yeah, and who features in this um, this documentary that we both watched. Yes, who set it up because England is backwards in terms of literary appreciation. Yeah, he said in what nineteen sixty eight. He was fairly straight talking, wasn't he, Tom Mashler? Uh, yes, he featured in Barney's Books and Bust Ups. <laughs> 50 Years of the Booker Prize, which was uh, quite a fun um, documentary uh, shown this week about the about the history of the prize. Um, no, it was it was funny actually because um, this is this is significantly more name dropping than usually happens in, in the podcast. But um, Rachel Cook, who is our TV critic, um, had recently written a piece about about the Booker, and one of the things she she'd pointed out is that there had been complaints that journalists had been hived off on a <laughs> like on a sort of elevated dais you know at the far end of the hall a kid's and, table and where was where were me and rachel <laughs> on the same table <laughs> on this on this basically kids kids platform at, at the end of the room so so this year you'd you'd read all of them this year hadn't i you? had i felt you in, hadn't read the long list because you weren't a judge this I year i didn't but. read all of the long list no i wasn't a judge leah robson our, our chief fiction critic was a was a judge and i tried to pump information out of him at various points, but failed spectacularly. I'd read the long list, which uh, I'd read the short list rather, which um, kind of puts you in the minority actually going around yeah. the table. I was definitely the the SWAT of the table having, having read all the books on it. Yeah. So the, it was, it was an interesting short list Two American writers, Rachel Kushner and Richard Powers, who I kind of felt were, were quite high in the running a, a verse novel, Mm. Um, by by a poet called Robin Robertson um, about LA in the in the forties and fifties and film noir and narrated by a, an army veteran. Really interesting book. Uh, a debut novel by uh, Daisy Johnson based on the Oedipus myth, which you can very quickly say a debut novel based on the Oedipus myth. But actually, I was just thinking about that book the other day. That's quite a bold myth mm. to take on. Mm. It's a really <laughs> it's one of the more far out ones yeah. to just you know do kill kill your dad and have sex with your mum, which is what <laughs> happens in that book. Um, in the so, modern day. Yeah, so <laughs> fair, fair, fair play to her. Did you, Hats off to Daisy for, for putting that off. <laughs> Did you feel, and one thing you always hear about, um, uh, it's the same with, with music prizes, but there is often a genuine sense of surprise when the winner is announced. And presumably that's, that's part of, I mean, Bookie's favourites are very, very rarely uh, sort of on the nose, aren't yes. they? Were you surprised by the Anna Burns win for Milman? Yeah, everyone was, everyone was surprised. I mean, I mentioned the other books there because those are the books that people were talking about around the table. Those are the books that people had read. You know, people just hadn't read the Anna Burns. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, she's, she's not a particularly well-known writer. She's kind of, she's in the mid-list. This is her third, this is her third novel. She was shortlisted for a prize in 2002 but but sort of has kind of disappeared since then it it looks quite difficult it's quite hard to sell with with a snappy one-liner so yeah people hadn't read it so people were really really um surprised 
but um i'm i'm thrilled for her and and there has been a kind of wave of good feeling about it and interestingly one thing that people were saying is oh booksellers are booksellers are i was saying this as well booksellers are not going to be happy about this because it's, it's a, supposed to be a big spike on the on the yeah, yeah, so you always get a big book a, sp- a big um, spike when you win the Booker Prize in sales, and obviously, booksellers want from the Booker Prize, they want a book that's going to, you know, you know, keep them, um, keep them well fed throughout throughout the Christmas and and the uh, and the winter months, and they've been they've got a bit grumpy because the last couple of years haven't been brilliant, and George Saunders, who won for Lincoln in the Bardo last year was the lowest selling book a winner for a decade despite being a fantastic book it's just you know it's it's a challenging novel the thing that i find funny about that is you think people would just buy it anyway and then find they can't get through it so in terms of the sales how does it affect you think people just flick through and think i can't stomach that it's got no paragraph breaks it's got characters called somebody mcsomebody like you've got a milkman yeah i think it's partly i think it's partly a word of mouth thing um uh, the George Saunders year is, I think, is slightly unfairly skewed because this is a really technical point, but it does make a difference. If the book is already out in paperback, it sells many more copies than if it's still in hardback. Yeah. And the George Saunders one was still in hardback. So it's a bit more of an investment. But I think, um, yeah, word of mouth does count. And if if people buy it and read it and don't get on with it, then they don't give it give six copies of it away at Christmas, yeah. which is, I think, you know, I certainly in my family, it's like, oh, <laughs> it's the book a winner. It's the book. Thanks. Can you feel <laughs> Thanks, why, um, can you feel why it won? Yes, I can. Yeah. I should say just, I, I probably everyone's, everyone knows all about it by now, but um, it's set in Belfast in the seventies, although it's totally removed from that setting. So there are no place names. There are no character names. Um, it's about an 18 year old girl who is being stalked by a much older man called the Milkman, um, who is not a milkman at all, but a quite sinister paramilitary figure. And nothing happens with this relationship, but the rumour mill of the community starts going and it's decided that she's in a relationship with this guy. And this actually has really big consequences for her. So it's really interesting on sort of male coercion and control I mean, people have talked about it in terms of Me Too, and mm. obviously it was written well before that. But actually, there's a passage in there where the narrator says, "It's only twenty years on." I look back on this and think, "Hang on, why did I feel I had to be polite to this guy? Huh. I had to stand there and listen to him. I had to get in his van. You know, um, I couldn't acknowledge the fact that mm. I was uncomfortable with it, which is obviously kind of something that is going on with a lot." of a lot of people at the moment. She has, she said anything about how where she took her inspiration from. She's quite sort of she's very about she's very that, private. She? I'm interviewing her tonight, so I will I will try and tease some of that out. Um, but um, she's very very private. I mean, she, it's obviously the setting is obviously based on her own childhood growing up. There's one very specific link, which is that the the main character is marked out as being different, um, which is kind of a dangerous thing to be in this community where. Mm. Uh, you know, adhering to the norms is is fairly highly prized by the fact that she walks around reading books. So she reads 19th century novels as she, <laughs> as she walks around the streets. And I know that that's something that Anna Burns did uh, when she was when she was a, a child. She talks about kind of 
reading Ivanhoe and Russian literature, kind of walking <laughs> through these kind of dark streets with cracked street lights, you know, um, which is kind of a, is amazing when you think that the area that she grew up in, Ardoin, which is a Catholic working class district of Northern Ireland, was one of the most dangerous parts of, mm. of, of Northern Ireland during the Troubles. There's a, you know, there's a separate page on Wikipedia just to list all the all the kind of killings that happened in Ardoin. So it was um it was a tough it was a tough place to grow up. But one thing the book charts is how you know that becomes normalized and that just becomes mm. part part of um part of your existence. I mean it has the same that the prize has the same um response uh, every year as a lot of uh, the music awards as well, which is oh what's the point of it? You know, and they started saying that in the in the nineties, yeah. didn't they? What's the point of the booker? Yeah. And why I was wondering why this happens with prizes. Is it because people get smug about them or bored with the format or you just kind of, you know, the press is all over them for the first few first couple of decades and then it becomes something that you just want to kind of kick and pick apart because there's no sign of this going anywhere, is there? I mean it's fifty thousand pound prize. Uh it's the the biggest book award in the world, isn't it? Mm. Um, so why is there this kind of thing every year of like, you know, is it time to, to end the, the Mercuries? Is it time to end the Booker? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think one of the things that that documentary teases out is um, how much fun people had with the prize in the past. And that definitely doesn't happen anymore <laughs> because, you know, you've got this huge corporate sponsor, you've got an incredibly professional PR team. You just don't have the kind of um, public spats and bust ups and things that marked the early the um, early years of the book. Of like Anthony Burgess saying, it's a it's a parochial prize for, for parochial, parochial novels. Yeah, or Kingsley Amos saying he's going to spend the money on booze. Booze, of course, <laughs> and curtains. He says. <laughs> what do they say they'll spend the money on now? And they get up there, they, they probably can't even mention the money because it's so I, vulgar. Yeah. I think they occasionally, I think they occasionally make a joke. I think I think Hilary Mantel said something about a swimming pool. Um, but, um, yeah, you get, you know, uh, you get Joanna Lumley writing from her, her dressing room saying over my dead body, will this book, will this book win the Booker Prize? And you kind of have the, the Guildhall full of, or was it the Guildhall then? I, I don't know, but the room full of kind of billowing cigarette smoke and, uh. I thought something uh, was on fire. Yeah, I know, it's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> it's just these smoke rings coming up. And then there was that amazing year in the seventies when John Berger, like, gave his money to the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, to the Black Panthers. Yeah, yeah. because, yeah. because the, you know, part of the, the, the booker is part of the same movement that's exploiting, uh, you know, poverty in the Caribbean as a result of things like the booker. So I'm going to share my money with the Black yeah, Panthers. Yeah, this is the original sponsor booker, which was uh, a food, you know, food wholesaler. Um, and I think they made money on sugar and things like mm. that. So, so Burgess saying, you know, this is, this is all from colonial exploitation. That didn't go down very well, did it? When no, did it didn't. No, I mean... I think the polite the polite audience was completely shocked, but all of this stuff fed fed into headlines. I think then it was seemed enough for it to be a, a prize for the best book. Now it seems to have a real crisis of identity in that. Yes, okay, it's still a prize for the best book, but should it be a book that is also challenging? Mm. Should it be should it be a book that is going to be very popular? You know, should it include writers from outside the UK? Well, it outside the UK and the Commonwealth. Well, it, it decided that it should. Um, Very and, recently, yeah, and that and that uh, annoyed a lot of people. Which seems strange, like the idea that suddenly just opening up America is going to destroy the the whole nature of the prize. I mean, 
Yeah, I can, I can, I can see it both ways. I think it's made. I think it's given it. I mean, every every prize has has criteria that narrow it down, right? The the you know, even now it's only for for books in the in the English language mm. or that are published in the UK. Um, so it's always going to be a little bit arbitrary. Um, and I think the argument is that it spread the net too far, so that the kind of conversation about it becomes a bit too diffuse. But yeah, I mean, the, having said that, two two of my favourite books the last few years have been American winners of the Booker Prize, George Saunders and, and Paul Beatty. I also think there's just something very powerful about um, nostalgia and hindsight with awards generally, that you can always look back 20 or 30 years and say, oh, I can't believe those two giants were up against each other. What's happened to the literary world now? We've got, you know, all these modernists, those sort of like experimental indie kind of projects sort of fighting each other and, and you know, maybe they're not going to go down in history in the same way and stuff. And your brain does something where you just think it was always better then because there were better books being written then. Well, the, the Mercury is actually, it's a really good comparison actually because I think it's exactly the same yeah. conversations that go on then and you look back to like, oh, Massive Attack and, you know... Um, that, Pulp know, that, and Radiohead that era and, in the yeah, 90s, yeah. like um, with these giants fighting out. I mean, I think you can make a very broad point that this is all perhaps to do with the kind of atomization of culture and the fact that in those days you had the big newspapers covering covering these things. So there was one big conversation going on. Um, and now there's lots of mm. different conversations going on and it's hard to recapture the idea of something being that kind of central in the culture and we might um, be rewarding you know maybe rewarding experimental work now but we were then it just was experimental mm, for its time yeah and that that's why it just feels classic now yeah and maybe this would maybe you know uh, milkman will feel extremely classic in yeah. 20 years time so i think there's always that that going on you can always sort of think oh you know it used to be better than it is now yeah, absolutely the good old days Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Kate, we're extremely highbrow this week. We, we've got <laughs> we've gone from literature to politics. I mean, oh no! Uh, can you How are we can you imagine get... two people less yeah. well equipped to talk yeah, about literature? Especially and the publication least equipped to talk about these things oh, as well. Jesus! So um, we went to see. Um, Michael Moore's new film, Fahrenheit 11.9, which is a neat reversal of his film, Fahrenheit 9.11. And you went first and and you you warned me of its sort of slightly sprawling nature and its length. And that really helped because then I I thoroughly enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) Because I knew it was two hours, 10 minutes with an entire film about Flint shoved (laughs) in the middle. So can you you summarise? Gosh. What's the... I mean... It starts with the question: Trump won the election. Mm. How the fuck did How this the happen? Fuck, yeah. So, so that that's his kind of starting point. Where, where does he go? Where does he take? I mean, it I think there? it's sort of it's very um, it's quite powerfully done. Really, he focuses particularly on two states, Michigan and, and West Virginia, in order to explore the reasons that states like that stopped voting or or went dramatically in the case of Michigan from part of the blue wall to a huge majority for Trump. So yeah. and, he, and more is from Michigan. Isn't and more it? is from yeah. Michigan. Yeah. And and I get the feeling that, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I get the feeling that he wanted to make a film about the Flint water crisis. I don't know how much uh, this reached the rest of the world, but um, that Rick, Rick Snyder um, basically diverted all the drinking water from, I believe, the uh, it, from the lake to the river and poisoned dozens and dozens and dozens of, of of inhabitants of Flint by putting it through lead piping that got into their water system. And this is a, a huge scandal, but this actually happened on Obama's watch. Um, so I get the feeling that you know, this was sort of one of the, the greatest um, tragedies of, of recent years in politics. This was an overlooked state. This is an extremely poor state mm. and um, that he was investigating this all along. But it works out perfectly in in his film because then he can look at why at why these voters maybe didn't turn out. Um, and there's a there's a really really tragic section where Obama comes along um, to talk to the people of Flint and does this insane sort of press stunt of asking for a glass of drinking water uh, on the podium and being seen to take a mouthful of it, which is like a kind of um, mega version of when John Gummer shoved the, the the burger into his daughter's mouth during the mm. BSE crisis here. It's like the most insensitive thing you could do. It's saying like, it's it's all right for me. Uh, you know, I'm sure the water's all right now kind of thing. And then, and then went back to Washington. So he interviewed a lot of people who at the time said that that, that was it for them, that Obama was their hero. And at that moment, they, they lost, they lost the love for him and they, you know. It's extremely shocking. And I think it's the most successful part of the film, isn't mm. it? Because this story is, seems to be a very black and white case of corruption, greed and callousness from from the kind of corporate elite and from this awful Republican governor who, when it's discovered that the new water supply from the River Flint is basically poisonous and, you know, 
kids are being tested and they found out they've got lead poisoning um, and the water is corroding parts in the General Motors auto- automobile factory. So the General Motors factory is allowed to switch back to the clean supply from the lake while the population of Flint continues to have to have the river water. Mm. Um, so it's a very it, it, it's a very clear clear case for for more to and because it's his hometown as well it's kind of um, and and it allows him to do some of his some of his uh, stunts as well he goes to make a citizen's arrest of uh, of Governor Snyder and he turns up at his house and tries to spray water over the fence <laughs> yeah, when he which is sort of semi-effective but he's kind <laughs> of like he's got this hose and he's just sort of pours a little bit over the over the fence and then kind of packs up and goes, goes home. So um but um the 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 problem with the film I guess is is as you say tying that in with the with the rest of the narrative because it didn't happen on Trump's watch. Um and there are other things that Moore is interested in, such as the Parkland shootings in Florida from earlier this year and the teacher strikes in West Virginia. Mm. And then he moves on to the new wave of um, left-wing candidates that have sprung up from those movements. Um, and that's the point, I guess, where you get kind of a bit of optimism and a bit of a focal point for the, for the film that, that there might be some new hope springing out of all of this. Including one of our favourite uh, characters in the film, Richard Oyeda. Um, who is the? What is he now? What's his actual title? Because he's an ex-marine. Well, he's running. He's running for. He's in the midterms. He's running for um, a seat in the House of Representatives. I mean, don't don't try and get me on. He's just American gone down in the polls as well. I heard today. That. I know. I know. So, so, this, so describe this guy. So this he's is amazing. Ex, he's forty-seven years old. Uh, he's ex-marine. Um, uh, looks like. Um, He's a skinhead, basically. He's got 58 metal plates in his face and he had eight broken bones after being attacked two days before he won his state Senate seat. Um, by a guy you're going to say for, by some army no injury. this is wow. like this is what Bloody politics hell. is like in West Virginia. A guy told him at a cookout to go and stick a bumper sticker on his car and then tried to run him over with the car. The guy's now in prison for five years. So Ayeda voted Trump and then came back from two terms in, I don't know, Afghanistan or something, and saw that West Virginia, which is, I think, the poorest state in, in the US, um, had just rapidly declined while he'd been away. And it's like, okay, and basically just had this huge conversion, um, became Democrat, um, and and was, yeah, somebody even tried to kill him in the process of him of him running for um uh, for his state senate seat, so he's he's got his his pedigree is just incredible, and he's this extremely pumped up kind of um, aggressive guy that uh, Moore meets in a coffee shop in West Virginia, and like he seems to he seems to start every sentence with "I would fight you on the street." <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite frightening to be around. The second time he says that, Moore's like, "How many yeah. how many people are?" He says, "Like my my campaign manager is a is a long distance truck driver. He'll fight you in the street <laughs> too." Like, how many people have I got to It's find? an area of like struggling coal mines, opioid addiction, he mentions, left behind white voters and teachers who are on so little money that they have to get food stamps. And so in West Virginia, there's the, one of the, the best bits of the film is the, the this teacher strike, which mm. ran for nine days um, for better pay and for um, the overruling of some strange um, rule whereby in order to qualify for health insurance, I think, they had to wear a Fitbit 
uh, to prove that they'd done a certain number of steps per month. And if they didn't, they had $500 docked from their pay or something like that. So this is this kind of like very fat mayor or whatever in, in, in Charleston who put all this through and they striked against him for, for nine days and they finally got their way. He's the other, along with Snyder, he's the other, I mean, he's the other baddie of the baddie of the film really, yeah. isn't he like less so than and more so even than trump governor jim justice yes he's this toad like guy who sits in this chair for 10 days he holds out against these people and then you finally see him signing the bill which he does with the same sort of sickly smile he's smiling he goes, when yeah, you I, know. <laughs> I know he's like oh go on then he's you the guys. richest man he's a billionaire he's the richest man in west virginia really? yeah governor jim justice um more plays this kind of um Ennio Morricone soundtrack when he first <laughs> introduces him as sort of some Western baddie. Um, I mean, it is sort of a, it's a perfect example of like more, more style. The editing in it is, is completely nuts. There's a section about Trump's racism and he's cut together various clips of Trump on the podium going, you get out now. When As though he's pointing to a black person or a Mexican person, when of course he's just probably making a joke to one of his mates or something. And Moore gets away with editing all this stuff together. We obviously, we all know Trump's racist, so that's, yeah. he can do this to make his yeah. point. But you, it's very powerful um, filmmaking and you get sucked into those, uh, that that manipulation. I mean, the, 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 the thing that everyone's talking about is the fact that he dubs footage of Hitler with Trump's voice towards the end. And that's, you know, that is in our day and age, that is not a cool thing to do, but actually, why the fuck not? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know? I think that, you know, Paul Mason interviewed him for us in, in this week's magazine. And and the point Michael Moore makes is that um, liberals are very reluctant to sort of um, play nasty. What's the word? Play dirty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they like to be reasonable and they don't want to do things like dub Mm. Um, Trump over over Hitler, but actually, you know that's what that's what they've got to do if they if they want to win. So yeah, that's fair enough. But yeah, certainly as a as a kind of British metropolitan elite film goer, you feel really uncomfortable about <laughs> about this stuff. And Paul also, said like, there was a gasp in the screening when when the Hitler footage yeah, came on. Everyone went, yeah. "Oh!" It's like, well, come on, why not? You know? Yeah, and he does also. I mean, one bit which I I felt went too far and I also was just confusing was he had this whole section about the Reichstag fire which you know was supposedly staged by the Nazis in order for for Hitler to be able to clamp down on the Communist Party and then it's sort of weirdly towards the end merged with sort of 9-11 footage yeah. and you're like okay wh- what? He's, he says in the film I think we're just one 9-11 away from Trump being able to turn on the screws and, and yeah. it's like it's basically okay, so it's the conspiracy theory stuff, isn't it? It's like yeah. um, you know, all he needs to do is make another nine eleven mm. happen. And I mean, I thought, yeah, that was that was um, quite a stretch as well. But on the flip side, that you know, he has this uh, incredible ninety nine year old Nuremberg lawyer mm. that he interviews, who's this razor sharp guy who's talking about the separation of families on the Mexican border and and various other things. And at one point, he says, you know, I hanged people for doing that, and it's happening now in America. And he starts crying. Yeah. So, and you think someone who was at those trials is crying over yeah. the state of America now, and they're not even an American. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I, I thought that was quite, I think it, it sort of packs a lot of, of punches in quite a strange patchwork sort of setting as a, as a film. And it's, you just have to sit through it, really. There are a few laughs as well, aren't there? I mean, um, I know he's a, he's a Hillary supporter, but he's quite ruthless on the failings of the Democrat Party yeah. and um, the complacency as well. Um, and at the beginning, you see the kind of 
lots of clips of pundits kind of chuckling over the fact that Trump's going to win and saying, oh, he'll never win. You know, why are you even asking me that? And then the kind of the absolute confidence of the mm. the Democrats on the night of the election. Yeah. This huge rally, you know, I believe that we will win. <laughs> and um, the the Trump gang is sort of really somber. And, yeah. um, the, you know, it, it just, but it you- reminds you what a surprise that was. And, and then you see Hillary kind of like on the stage, thanks to Jay-Z and Beyonce and <laughs> Chance the Rapper, yeah. you know, like, and, and Moore's voiceover goes, she has no idea who any of these people are. <laughs> But the, when when it showed Trump coming on after he'd after he'd won, it, I'd forgotten all about that. And it's a bit it's interesting how quickly you forget these things. Um, it's just like with Brexit that there was a feeling of he didn't want this to happen. He says, "Never did a group of people look so sad to win the presidency." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was like I, I, I just erased that from from memory that he's he's standing there with his kids and they just look like, "Oh my god, what are we going to do now?" And it's sort of you know it was all just a game and it worked. Well. You know? Just finally, the uh, the point he make he makes about it being just a game is that he um, playfully blames the whole thing on Gwen Stefani. Yeah. Because uh, when Trump finds out that she's getting paid more on The Voice, is mm. it? Then he is, is on it, the Apprentice. On the Apprentice, right? That she's higher, better paid than him. He decides to kind of stage this fake, yeah. you know, running running for office. Yeah, thing and that's where it all began. And, yeah. that, and he just sort of has to, ends up having to see it through. Amazing. Uh, Fahrenheit 11.9 is out in cinemas now. It's now time for our non-aversary, which is our um, anniversary of a, of a culturally significant or possibly culturally insignificant event, depending on your perspective, this one is fairly significant um, for both of us, and makes for all us, of you, makes us feel pretty pretty old. I think old and and moved. Old and moved. <laughs> <laughs> it um, is um yes twenty six years since Sleeping Satellite by Tasman Archer was number one for a short time in the UK. Uh, it was in nineties Pedigree Company because it knocked Ebenezer Good off the charts with Ease Good, and it was replaced by End of the Road by Boys to Men. What a what a trio! I know what a triple whammy. The um, Ebenezer Good was number one for four weeks, mm. and Sleeping Satellite only got two, which seems which is like- amazing because it was so. I think it was so radio friendly that it just. I mean, it just and it just shone out of the radio, yeah. didn't it? It was yeah. beautiful. It was just this kind of otherworldly luminous kind of song and she never had a hit with anything else she co-wrote it with her partner they went on to write some music for eastenders um but they never had another hit she's british she's british and she's with a guy called john hughes who's also a musician they wrote it together and she got the 1993 brit award for best british breakthrough act which is so classic on one song uh, but she later joked that she kept the award in the back of her kitchen cupboard and used it for cracking nuts and tenderizing steak <laughs> because she wasn't really like she wasn't really a pop star. And then she began to paint and mould with clay. Do you think that's what she's doing now? That, who knows? I imagine know. they probably live quite well off Sleeping Satellite. I imagine you probably bring you could probably bring in fifty grand a year off that. I hope that's so. my estimate. I mean, also stuck out as being a song about something mm. about the uh, Apollo moon moon landings. And I just watched the video for the first time, which is quite odd. It's like a haunted, well, not really a haunted house. It's a kind of uh, old scientist lair with sort of Faraday globes. And, a, and she's like, like 
standing under a starry dome. She's just slowly rotating throughout the whole song. <laughs> and there's a there's a sort of Darwin figure with a white beard slumped in an armchair, and then a little cherub with wings comes in. I, I've I've no idea. What's I like the idea with on. songs like this. I always like to think when somebody just had one hit and it was about something. A bit like um, American Pie. I know you mm. had other hits, Don McLean, but just a kind of inspiration of of something that was not about you and not about love and loss and the usual sort of subjects of pop songs, but but literally about like something in popular culture that inspired you and you just decide to write this song about and then that was it. Also, what a great, you know, poets spend their whole life coming up with moon metaphors and the sleeping satellite is a great, it's one of the great moon metaphors, That's the moon, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Happy non-aversary, Tasman Archer. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Kate, are you, you okay? I'm Kate just was very doing moved. some typing. Kate was very moved by um, our little spot on Sleeping Satellite. And now I'm logging on to my email go, while you finish the podcast. Going to go away and listen to it for the rest of the day and think about, think about what she's done over the past 26 years. Yes, thank you for downloading this uh, episode of our podcast, which we like to call The Back Half. We've been edited by Caroline Crampton. Do go onto iTunes and rate us and tell your friends about us. And we're going to leave you with... A banging tune, um, which is Godspeed by the Japanese jazz rock outfit Pistol Jazz. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.